So I brought something from my childhood to share with you this morning. Some of you are going to recognize this. This is dating myself. It's a choose-your-own-adventure book. Yes? Yes. Um, These were all the rage back in the 80s and 90s. You're nodding, yes. This guy, R.A. Montgomery, he was involved in game theory and role play simulations, and he had this idea to make a role playing game in the form of a book, okay? And it was a huge hit. Turns out readers love to be involved in making narrative choices on their own, right? Like this, ready? If you choose to fight the giant squid, turn to page 17. If instead you hide inside the shipwreck and search for the rum, turn to page 58, right? Okay. So instead of one continual plot line, you ended up with dozens, sometimes hundreds. And just because I'm a nerd about this kind of stuff, here's a graphic that illustrates in this book, Journey Under the Sea, all the possible plot lines that could happen. This guy ended up writing 184 choose-your-own-adventure books. It became the fourth best-selling children's series of all time. It had a huge impact on video gaming and the trend towards narrative ownership in video games. It's considered to have presaged the internet, the ultimate place where users take choices into their own hands. It had a major impact on education. As it turns out, not surprisingly, kids are much more eager to learn to read when they see themselves in the plot of a book. And it even had this, um, like it contributed to the resurgence of imaginative RPG games like Dungeons and Dragons and things like that that are seeing a resurgence right now. Here's my point. We love being part of the story, don't we? Narrative storytelling is this uniquely human activity. Animals communicate, we know that, but they don't tell stories. That is all us. Walter Fisher's narrative paradigm is a theory that claims all meaningful human communication occurs during storytelling. That stories are far more persuasive than arguments. And the baseline is this. Storytelling is simply part of what it means to be human. And it's not just books. Right? It's okay if you don't love to read movies, good jokes, spooky campfire stories, graphic novels, journalism, comics, travel blogs, just catching up with a coworker about their backpacking trip, storytelling people. I wrote part of this at a coffee shop last week, and as I wrote those words, we are a storytelling people, I just took a minute to look around me. There were at least a dozen conversations swirling, right? I could hear snippets, a few awkward first dates, some old friendships some business conversations, all of them, storytelling. The shelves were piled around me with stories. I saw Mark Twain, Rudyard Kipling, some Tolkien, some old Nancy Drew novels. And the walls were covered in art that told the story of a young woman's life journey. We are a storytelling people, I would argue, because we are made in the image of a storytelling God. Okay, so today's text, today's text in the Bible, is one of the most treasured stories about Jesus of all time. It's a little ironic because I bet your Bible has a note in it that this story wasn't even included in some of the original copies of the Bible. Okay, we'll get to that in a minute. Here's the plan for this morning. First, I want to look at why original text um, did not include this story. Then I want to read it, dissect it a little bit, and then I want to look at the story from three different character point of views. And then finally, we're going to discover the main idea, what this shows us about Jesus, because that's kind of the whole point, right? So head to John 8 with me in your Bibles. And first, I want to address the elephant in the room, those little italicized words that come right before the text. Here's what my translation says. The most ancient Greek manuscripts do not include John 7.53 to 8.11. I won't make the obvious joke about Justin handing me a passage to teach that may or may not belong in the Bible. Thank you, Justin. 
It's called the Pericope Adultery Controversy in Bible Scholar Circles, and it's about the woman being caught in adultery, Pericope Adultery. Okay. So how the Bible was compiled, um, the criteria for what makes it in, what didn't, who was in charge of those decisions, that is interesting and complicated territory. Next week, Justin will spend the whole message discussing the infallibility of Scripture, how things got in there, why we can trust what's in the Bible. For today, I just want to address a few things. What's in your Bible is there because hundreds and thousands of manuscripts prove its credibility and authenticity. Here's the baseline. The older the manuscript, the more valuable and reliable it is. The closer those hand copies are to the original manuscript, the more the story of Jesus was recorded shortly after his death, first century, maybe second century, it's considered much more reliable than a story that popped up hundreds of years later, which I think makes a lot of sense. Our story, the Pericope Adultery for this morning, is traced back to just after AD 100, practically first century. Reliable. So why the weird footnote? Here's what scholars do agree on. One, John most likely didn't write this. The language is more Lukish than anything. Two, this is not where it belongs chronologically. We actually don't know where it belongs chronologically. Early Greek manuscripts have it in five different places, four in John, one in Luke. But scholars agree that this is a historically accurate, true story about Jesus. This happened, and we can trust it as truth and as a glimpse into the life and heart of Jesus. Why it was not included in some early manuscripts, it's a mystery still. But there's a strong theory that I want to share with you after we read the text. Okay. So let's get to it. John 7, 53 to 8, 11. You can follow along in your Bible up on the screen. And in the spirit of storytelling, I'm just going to read the whole story to you without stopping. And then we'll go bit by bit. So from the NLT translation, because I am who I am. John 7, 53. Then the meeting broke up. And everybody went home. Riveting first line, yeah? Ready? Okay. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? They were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, All right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she said. And Jesus said, Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Okay. Lots of familiar verses and ideas in that, especially if you've been around the church for any amount of time. If you are brand new, then you are in for a treat today. So let's go verse by verse through it together, starting with 53. Then the meeting broke up, and everybody went home. It's a, it's a funny little guy. It doesn't connect to anything. It doesn't make any sense in the context. Remember, the story is not in chronological order, so we have no idea what meeting they are talking about. It could be an HOA meeting, a PTA meeting, a Cub Scouts den meeting an NLT appreciation meeting, no? 
The point is what happens next, verses one and two. Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, but early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught. This is simply what Jesus' ministry looked like during this time. It actually doesn't even matter where the story falls chronologically because this is consistent with those years between baptism and crucifixion, right? Crowds followed him around, he taught in the temple, and he constantly irritated religious leaders, which conveniently brings us to verse three. As he was speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery. They put her in front of the crowd. Now it gets interesting, right? I'm gonna leave this verse up on the screen for you. This whole verse should make you radically uncomfortable. First of all, as he was speaking is a rude interruption at best, most likely time to sabotage his teaching. Okay? Secondly, the religious leaders are parading this woman around in front of the crowd. It does not feel much like quality church leadership. Given that she was caught in adultery, there's a good chance that she wasn't decently clothed either, which makes their total lack of compassion obvious for her as a human being. In fact, I would say this is spiritual abuse from her religious leaders. Third, the real question that I hope you're already asking, why just her? Last I checked, it takes two people to commit adultery, so something is very wrong from the get-go with this whole story. If justice was really their motive, both guilty parties would have been brought. If a man had been involved, the religious leaders let him go, possibly because of his position or gender, which would have been a blatant abuse of the legal process. Think about it, we already know that they are trying to trick him and trap him and humiliate him, so we can safely say this whole thing is one big trap. But what does that mean about her role in this story? The verse says she had been caught in the act, so I think there are a few logical options for what actually happened. Option A, she was actually caught in actual adultery. In her worst moment, her church leaders treated her as an object and shamed her instead of helping her, and presumably the guy was let off the hook. Option B, she was set up. It was a trap after all, and more than one Bible scholar argues that it was the Pharisees themselves who set the whole thing up as part of the trap, and the guy was part of the trap, possibly even a Pharisee himself, so he was let go. Option C, she wasn't even an adulteress, just a woman the Pharisees grabbed off the street to be a pawn in this big plan, and there wouldn't have been a guy because she wasn't even in adultery. It's kind of a choose-your-own-moment adventure, but I want you to hold on loosely to all three of those right now, and let's keep going in the story. Teacher, they said to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to stone her. What do you say? So, I imagine you're asking, what was the actual law they were talking about? And I'm really glad you asked. Leviticus 20.10, if a man commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, both the man and the woman who have committed adultery must be put to death. Deuteronomy 22.22, 22, if a man is discovered committing adultery, both he and the woman must die. In this way, you will purge Israel of such evil. Do you see the death punishment for adultery was for both participants, which shows how legally and morally in the wrong the Pharisees are at this point. But here's actually what I want you to see, the nature of this trap they are setting. And here it is. If Jesus doesn't approve stoning the woman caught in adultery, he breaks the Jewish laws, the Mosaic code that we just read. Okay. If he does approve stoning her, he breaks the Roman law that says Jewish citizens cannot carry out capital punishment. 
We'll get into this later, but they are trying to trap him between truth and grace. Right? If he shows grace, he breaks the Jewish law. If he leans towards justice, he breaks the Roman law. He cannot win. My kids, Violet and Daniel, spent a large portion of their childhood trying to um, trick me into declaring a favorite child. At first, at first they would ask me outright, like, who do you love more? And then they got a little more sneaky about it. It's okay, mom, you can admit it, I'm your favorite. Um, but don't worry, I won't tell, right, it's okay. Then they started laying traps for me. One day, Violet sauntered in the room and said, mom, you look hungry, like you need a snack. Tell me, mom, what sounds better to you, chocolate or graham crackers? Which do you like more? That might sound innocent to you, unless you know that. Because of our three different skin tones, our family self-identifies as a s'more. Um, I'm, I'm the marshmallow, Daniel is the graham cracker, and Violet is the chocolate. I forgot that in the moment. I said chocolate sounded better, and Violet said, yes, I knew I was the favorite. And then she runs upstairs to gloat before I could even put it all together. It was a trap <laughs> that didn't involve chocolate also. Pope John Paul II explains Jesus' trap like this. If he, Jesus, absolves the woman caught in flagrant adultery, it will be said that he has transgressed the precepts of Moses. If he condemns her, it will be said that it is inconsistent with his message of mercy towards the sinner. Right? If you choose Jewish law, turn to page 15. Roman law, 43. I don't want to show all my cards too soon, but the beauty of the story, the whole beauty, is what it shows us about Jesus. He is fully grace and truth. Both. He doesn't turn to either page 15 or 43. He turns to page 99 or 77 or something. And the Pharisees, the Pharisees hate him for it. It's heartbreaking. In their striving for justice and righteousness, they have lost gentleness and mercy and love. And seeing Jesus adored by the crowds for the very thing that they are lacking drives them crazy with jealousy and hatred, determined to eliminate him. Let's keep going for now. Verses six to eight, they were trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. Are you noticing all the movement? He's standing and then he stoops down, and then he's standing, and then he stoops down. Pay attention to his physical posture, to where he is drawing the crowd's attention. Maybe away from the possibly indecently clad woman to preserve some of her dignity, possibly lowering himself in a gesture of humility or connection with her. And don't you want to know what he wrote in the dust? <laughs> Me too. It's one of those when I get to heaven questions, along with the purpose of mosquitoes and whether or not Adam and Eve had belly buttons, okay? <laughs> I'll let that one sit there for a minute. No one knows what he wrote in the dust, but plenty of people have speculated, right? God wrote with his finger, remember, the Ten Commandments on stone tablets. Maybe Jesus was connecting the dots between God and himself and writing the law. A really popular opinion is he was writing out the sins of her accusers for them to read so they would know that he knew. Adultery, jealousy, lust, hypocrisy, Maybe he was playing Jewish Wordle. I don't know. Or tic-tac-toe with the Holy Spirit, right? I don't know. Whatever he wrote, the point was this. He did not play the Pharisees' game. He did not fall into the trap. His response keeps the demands of truth, the justice side. He doesn't argue with the law and say she shouldn't be stoned. In fact, he invites justice at the hands of sinless accusers. 
And his response keeps the demand of grace. He creates a compassionate way out for her. St. Augustine puts it like this, hence either let this woman go or together with her receive the penalty of the law. Like, if she's guilty, you are too. It's genius. And their response, verse nine, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman. So why the oldest first? My dad would say age before beauty. (laughs) But really, the text doesn't give us a reason. I think we can levy a solid guess here. The Bible's view of aging is radically different than our culture's view of aging, isn't it? In pop culture, aging is a dirty word. People go to extreme lengths to battle the signs of aging, to at least make it look like it isn't happening to them somehow. We admire people who are aging backwards and don't look a day over fill in the blank. Celebrities are most loved when they are young and beautiful and they are very vocal about how hard it is to get an acting job in Hollywood past a certain age. Same for social media influencers. We only listen when they are young and beautiful and exude life. But biblical aging is different. It's celebrated. Aging means more honor, more respect, more power, more wisdom, more leadership, more people listening to what you have to say. I read a devotional series on this recently that used the word ripening instead of aging, and I kind of love it. Biblical aging connotes moving towards fruition, progress. So why did the oldest ones walk away first? I think they realized the truth first. I think they felt the weight of their own sin first. They felt convicted and in their earned wisdom knew when it was time to lay down the fight, lay down their pride. I mean, statistically speaking, they also had been alive longer, so probably had sinned more, so they had more raw data to work with, right? (laughs) So after her accusers had walked away, probably in a long, heavy, awful silence with the sound of stones dropping, Look how the story ends, verses 10 and 11. Then Jesus stood up again and said to the woman, where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she says. And Jesus said, neither do I. Go and sin no more. I love how Jesus asks questions to which he already knows the answers. He is gentle and he leads us to truth, often through asking questions that invite us to choose. Here's where he led her. That God's heart for the sinner, which by the way means God's heart for all of us, is life, not death. It is freedom and forgiveness and life change and forward motion. As it turns out, death by stoning is not God's desire for us, and that is good news. This ending is why this is such a beloved story. It's poetic justice for the accusers, right? Unmerited mercy for the woman. Mischievous maneuvers by Jesus. It kind of has everything. But if it's just a good story, then we have missed the point. So let's shift gears a little bit this morning. Time for our weekly question. So what? What does this story have to do with us today? Remember how we started all this? Choose your own adventure. We are narrative beings. Remember this. We bond through stories. We remember through stories. We form our identities through stories. We fall in love through stories. And we cannot help but read ourselves into the story. We identify and see ourselves as a character. My son Daniel once spent a solid nine months as Astro Boy, not just dressed as him, but as him. (laughs) He only responded to that name. He wrote that name on the top of his little preschool papers. 
He moved like him. He spoke like him. It was like method acting for you know, three-year-olds. He read himself and his identity into that story in a big way. And I think we all do that to an extent. Remember being a teenager? Or maybe you still are one. What movies did you love the most? Most likely, movies about teenagers. Mine were Breakfast Club, Sixteen Candles, Footloose, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, Adventures in Babysitting, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. You are drawn to the stories in which you can see yourself. So, is the Bible any different? Are Bible stories somehow off limits for reading ourselves into them? Is it wrong to see ourselves as a character in the Bible and to identify deeply with them? I do this all the time. A friend of mine, a good friend of mine once said, Carrie Faye, not every Bible story is about you. (laughs) She was right, but also she was wrong. Kierkegaard says this, the fundamental purpose of God's word is to give us true self-knowledge. It's a real mirror. And when we look at ourselves properly in it, we see ourselves as God wants us to see ourselves. The assumption behind this is that the purpose of God's revelation is for us to become transformed, to become the people God wants us to be. But this is impossible until we see ourselves as we really are. The stories in this book serve as a mirror. And what do mirrors do? They reflect. I think God means for us to put ourselves in the story so he can show us something about ourselves, but also he can reflect to us glimpses of himself, his reflection. And he knows that a good story is the best way to get to our hearts. Arthur Barnabas Piper explains it like this, my favorite quote from the whole morning. If God didn't want us to be in the story, he wouldn't have written it as a story. Stories are pathways to truth that is inaccessible through any other medium. And we must walk the pathways, not simply observe them, if we are to know the truth. To walk the pathways is to be in the story. So, all that, because my question for you this morning is this. Where do you see yourself in the story that we just read? Pericope adultery. I'd wager you automatically read yourself into a role, and if you didn't, think about it for a minute. I see three primary options. The woman, Pharisee, spectator. Because if you cast yourself as Jesus, we might need to chat a little bit after church. (laughs) And I'd say where you cast yourself naturally is pretty indicative of where God wants to meet you this morning in this text. Let's start with perhaps the most obvious role. Whether you're male or female, there's a good chance a large percentage of this room automatically cast themselves as the woman in the story. The person trapped, the person may be wrongly accused, most likely publicly exposed in her most embarrassing sin. And maybe you have had that bottom of the barrel moment. Maybe it was public and humiliating. Maybe it was private and full of shame. Maybe it was a dark sin being exposed, a harsh light. Or maybe it was being abused by the people that should have protected you. What we learn from this story is that Jesus is exactly who you want to meet on that day. To the woman, Jesus extends truth and grace. Because of him, her worst day becomes her best day, or potentially her best day. Because true to a choose-your-own-adventure story, we don't actually know what she chooses. Page 23, page 49, the story does not tell us. It's a cliffhanger. But what Jesus does offer her, should she choose to accept it, is a second chance and a challenge. 
and a warning and forgiveness and dignity and love. You don't have to be female to identify with this character. But I do want to say something about the fact that this character is, in fact, a woman. Being a woman in the world can be complicated, even at times in the church. But ladies, being a woman standing in front of Jesus is not complicated. I hope you're noticing as we move through John that his interactions, Jesus' interactions with women, are culturally radical. Author Sarah Bessie says this, During his time on earth, Jesus subverted the social norms dictating how a rabbi spoke to women, to the rich, the powerful, the housewife, the mother-in-law, the despised, the prostitute, the adulteress, the mentally ill, and demon-possessed, the poor. He spoke to women directly instead of through their male headship standards and contrary to the order of the day and even of some religious sects today. Okay, a few things about that. Most translations of John 8 have Jesus addressing her as a woman, like woman, where are they as no one accused you? Which in the original language is the same phrase he uses to speak to his own mother back in John 2 at the wedding at Cana. It is full of endearment and respect to a woman who may have been halfway dressed, laying in the dirt, an object of shame and ridicule. He is respectful and gentle and kind. But also, and I love this part, he challenges her. He teaches her. He includes her, and he is strong. He does not let her off the hook like some delicate flower or fragile doll unable to do hard things. He says to her, go and sin no more. Change your whole life. It doesn't even matter if she's guilty of adultery because she's certainly guilty of sin, as are we all. And to call her from sin into forgiveness, grace, and then repentance and life change, truth. A full 180 was a merciful and strong and loving act, grace and truth. Male or female, there is freedom in that kind of conviction. And if you have identified with this character in the story because you fear your darkest shame coming to light, I hope you can see that what waits for you on the other side of that moment is freedom and relief. Now, what about those of us who identify with the Pharisees and the religious leaders? Maybe your tendency is towards self-righteousness and a lack of grace for other people's sin. Critical spirit, legalism, is Jesus any less gentle with you? Here's my moment of honesty for the morning. This is where I land when I read this. I tend towards the very ugly bent of self-righteousness and criticism. I remember reading the story of the prodigal son when I was younger and just being so angry on behalf of the older brother who stays behind, who makes the right choices, who is faithful, doesn't rebel and seemingly is not celebrated or loved or pursued the way his younger brother is, even after younger brother makes all the terrible choices. I reread it again more recently. I know I'm supposed to get wiser as I ripen. It still just made me mad, honestly. And if I can make a sweeping generalization real quick, I think the longer you're in the church following Jesus, a lot of good stuff happens. But the longer you're there, the more this particular sin becomes a real danger. Perhaps when we're new to Jesus, we might read ourselves into the woman's role, the prodigal son, but the longer we're here in the faith, the more self-righteousness has a chance to sneak in, the longer we start to act and think like the Pharisees. So what do we do with that? What does Jesus do with that? To the Pharisees, Jesus extends truth 
and grace. How did he treat the Pharisees in this story? Rudely? Harshly? With hatred? Look, they were trying to trap him and to say something they could use against him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote in the dust with his finger. They kept demanding an answer, so he stood up again and said, all right, but let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. Then he stooped down again and wrote in the dust. Even though they were acting against Jesus, and he knew it, he doesn't call them out or even embarrass them. He convicts them. His heart for them is the same as his heart for the woman, full of mercy, full of justice. He wants them to live, to learn, to repent, to lay down their sin and find full life. All through the Gospels, remember, Jesus ate with the Pharisees. He dined with them. He hung out with them when invited. He never turned away someone who was seeking him, Pharisee or otherwise. And remember, part of how God shows us love is through correction and conviction. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he loves as a father, the son he delights in. Make no mistake, TCC. Jesus' love for the Pharisees and the religious leaders is as strong as his love for the people they persecute. When we read this story, we can let their wake-up call become our own. To my Pharisees in the room, your neighbor's sin is not worse than yours. <laughs> your heart, my heart, needs Jesus' radical truth and grace as much as every other person on earth. And this story is a beautiful and humbling way to re-remember what we have long known. And don't forget that in this story, the Pharisees were offered their own choose-your-own-adventure moment in which they chose to set down the stones and walk away from the fight. They saw their sin. They laid down their pride. And this is really good news for those of us who wrestle with the critical spirit. Okay, the last obvious role in the story is the crowd, the onlooker, bystander. Maybe someone who just showed up there that morning to hear him teach and ended up with a front row view to a pretty dramatic scene. Remember how the story started? Early the next morning, he, Jesus, was back again at the temple. A crowd soon gathered, and he sat down and taught them. So at some point, we're all in this crowd Maybe you're just checking out the whole God thing from a distance, keeping back, laying low, no decisions yet, just observing, curious, not committed. But here's the thing. Jesus cannot be kept at a safe distance for long. And that day, I think the onlookers saw why. The magic of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, exists in face-to-face interaction, close and personal. When the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with the woman, front row seat. They witnessed his teaching. They witnessed the Pharisees dragging her in. Then they witnessed the whole drawing in the sand situation. They witnessed his strength and gentleness, even with his accusers. And then they watched her have a life-changing exchange with him face-to-face, one-on-one, or maybe three-on-one, since Trinity is a big focus for us this series. I don't know. So what does Jesus offer to this onlooker? Okay, he offered truth and grace to the woman, truth and grace to the Pharisees. I bet you can't guess where I'm going with this. To the onlookers, Jesus extends truth and grace. You didn't see that one coming, right? The same heart he extends towards the woman and the Pharisees, he extends to everyone watching that day and today. He invites each of them and each of us in our imperfections and our sin, to just come close. You don't have to clean up first. You don't have to get your life right first. You just have to show up. He says, come to me, 
all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He says, anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. Anyone may come. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland describes Jesus as completely and totally accessible. I love that word, accessible. He says, for all of his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites, no hoops to jump through. You don't need to unburden or collect yourself and then come to Jesus. Your very burden is what qualifies you to come. Our culture loves this story about Jesus. Let the one who's never sinned throw the first stone is consistently quoted as a favorite bit of the Bible, even among unbelievers. Why is that? Because our culture loves to focus on the no judgment bit, right? But fails to focus on the go and sin no more bit. Our culture seems to want the grace without the truth. And that would only be half of the goodness that Jesus brings to the table. So to each of us today, Jesus extends both truth and grace. He is fully both things. And this is hard for us to imagine. We tend to think of it like a continuum, like the further towards grace you are, the farther from truth you are, and vice versa. But Jesus changes the rules. Pastor Luke Simmons says this, grace and truth. At our best moments, we are one or the other. Jesus is both at the same time. Think about it. We really are stuck on a continuum, grace and truth, and we tend to lean too far one way or the other. And depending on where we fall, Jesus might seem different to us. Like if we err on the side of truth and justice, Jesus feels like way too much grace and mercy. Like hold those people accountable. What are you doing, Jesus? But if we lean towards the grace side naturally, he can feel like too much truth and justice. Like, wow, it seems pretty harsh. But unlike us, Jesus is not stuck on a continuum. He is fully both all the time. He is the continuum. Tim Keller describes him beautifully here. Jesus Christ combines compassion and justice so perfectly that the world has never seen its like. He's the most absolutely unsurpassed, integrated personality, balanced, wise human being that we've ever seen. He's not just a kind of compromise, halfway between strong and tender but rather he is just and righteousness to the nth degree, and he is compassionate and melt-in-your-mouth gentle to the nth degree. These two traits don't fight in him. They unite in him. He is fully both, and it's exactly what every person in our story needed. The woman in shame, truth, yes, but first grace. The Pharisees with an agenda, truth, and grace. The onlookers, truth and grace. Every person in the room today, truth, and grace. And here's the truth for us. The Mosaic law isn't wrong. Our sin does deserve death. And the grace for us, Jesus stands in our place. So we are offered forgiveness and clean slates for what we don't deserve. This chapter in the Bible begins with a story that we just read. A woman who legally deserved to die by stoning. Not to give any spoilers, but look at how the same chapter ends, the last two verses in this chapter. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, before Abraham was even born, I am. At that point, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus was hidden from them and left the temple. So he stops them from throwing stones at her that she deserved. And then they are throwing stones at Jesus for what he does not deserve. I like to imagine they were the same stones. 
Truth is the cost of sin. Grace is that someone else is footing that bill. So as we wrap this up and head towards communion, I want to come full circle on something we talked about earlier, why this text is not included in original manuscripts. Yes, it's a mystery, but there is a theory that I find personally the most compelling and the most likely. St. Augustine proposed it. He basically says, the adultery pericope, the story of the woman caught in adultery, was removed to avoid scandal. He says in the very early days, early Christians were still getting their spiritual and moral legs, so to speak, and that some of them were of slight faith, and that the folks who were editing the text of the New Testament thought this was a dangerous story in the church, that maybe it would be read as a justification for a light view of adultery. So they left it out. Amazing. The story shows Jesus to be so radically gracious that for a long time people were afraid to tell it. Dan Allender echoes it. He says, the Christian faith and grace at its heart is so radical that most congregations can't deal with it. So today, I invite you to approach the tables of communion, ready to encounter the full expression of God's truth. It is okay and good to feel convicted and challenged, but also let's expect to encounter the full expression of God's grace in the person of Jesus.